0: And that's the way ESP seems to work, and that's also the way these other preconscious processes seem to work. They orient us in the right directions, but they don't give us the details.
1: Welcome back to Mind Matters, everyone. I am Harrison Cayley, joined with my co-hosts, Elon Martin and Corey Schink. And Today, we have the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Jim Carpenter. Jim is a clinical psychologist and psychotherapist, and he is author of the book we will be discussing today, First Sight, ESP and Parapsychology in Everyday Life. There's a copy of it right there. This book, we have talked about it on the show a couple times in the past, um, brought it up, references to it here and there. Personally, speaking for myself, um, as I was telling Jim a bit earlier I think it's probably one of the most important books on parapsychology written you know in the in the history of the field it might be high praise but I hope uh, I hope well I won't ask Jim if he agrees or not because it's his book but the thing that stands out for this book and for Dr. Carpenter's work is that this is I believe the first comprehensive theory of psi and so um, psychokinesis, telepathy, all those sorts of things, ESP. And what Jim has done in this book is look at all of the research, all of the the literature, all of the parapsychological lab research that's been done and basically fit it all into an overall theory. So at times, well, it is a rigorous book. It uh, took me a while to get through, but once I got into the meat of it and got through it, it was still riveting despite its... Uh, its um, its complexity and its comprehensiveness. So with that said, first of all, welcome to the show, Jim. It's great to have you here.
0: Oh, very nice to be here.
1: Maybe to start out with, as a, an introductory question, the book is called First Sight. So maybe could you talk a bit about what First Sight is? And maybe as a way of framing that, how does your understanding of psi differ from the common perceptions of what it's all about and i'll say the common perception is that psi is kind of a a special ability that some people may have or that or that an ordinary person might have in a in a little degree and it might pop up here and there Um, but it's kind of seen as like a superpower to a lot of people so with that said how would you compare your understanding to it with reference to as you call it first sight
0: um, well, I, I think that the, the, the main thing, it's a, first side is a play on the, the phrase second site, which is a traditional way of referring to ESP. And, um, and that implies that psi is a kind of secondary occasional, uh, like you say, thing that pops up sometimes maybe more for certain people who we think of perhaps as more psychic. Um, and of course it's a, in science it's an extremely controversial uh, area of study. First sight implies that actually psi goes on all the time for everybody and that um, it is the first line of our engagement with reality. Uh, it, it's behind every perception, every thought, every action. Um, but, for, I mean, this, on the face of it, doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. But if if you can assume that it's an unconscious process, size is a, an unconscious process, which fits into a whole host of unconscious processes that create our perceptions and our decisions and all of our experiences and actions. Um, we know from general psychology and neuropsychology that, um, every thought is actually preceded by a host of, uh, brain activities that precede that thought or that decision or whatever. And that, um, These things are intrinsically out of sight, and they happen um, very, very quickly, and they precede every bit of our experience. And what the theory proposes is that psi is the outer edge of this process, that um, we're sampling the world and accessing it and using it to form our experiences as we go along. I'm using it to try to form what I'm about to say next. I'm using it as I try to get some sense of the of the guy I'm talking to. Um, but by its nature, I can't be conscious of it. So it's first, it's first sight because it comes before our conscious experience and it's the very first part of all of those processes that precede our conscious experience. Um, As opposed to being something that happens occasionally, I'm assuming that it actually is going on all the time. And as opposed to belonging to a few special super people, um, I'm proposing that it has an everyday function for everybody and that uh, we're all using it. Uh, There are people who Are more likely to access it than others, and the theory does account for that. One thing I wanted to account for in my in my theory is if psi is real, if if incidents apparent incidences of ESP or psychokinesis are real and not just mistakes we're making, then um, they seem to happen pretty rarely, and. Rather unpredictably. Well, why is this? Um, well, the basic part of that answer is that it's unconscious. In no way is it ever an experience. ESP is misnamed as extrasensory perception because ESP is never a conscious experience. Um,
1: could you and get what into
0: it does do-
1: Could you get into that? Do yeah. Oh, go ahead, finish I, your thought.
0: Well, uh, what it does do is it contributes unconsciously to the creation of our experiences. Mm -hmm. And we can see it in action by what I call inadvertencies. Mm -hmm. That is, things that just happen to us. Um, Images that pop into our head, moods that pop up, um, impulses, dreams. Um, These are our little... Little signposts that we get that give us a glimpse of this process at work, and I'll say I am one thing that's been very important to me in developing the theory was getting a good picture of most I, most all of the research that's been done in mainstream psychology on subliminal perception. Uh, subliminal perception is. When, we, when we're exposed to some stimulus so quickly or so faintly that we can't be conscious of it. Um, but if you set up an experiment in the right way, you can show that these subliminal little snatches of, of sensation actually register and have an influence on, um, on what we come to perceive and do and feel a few minutes down the road. Mm -hmm. Um, if I, if I, if I take a group of people and exposed half of them, um, to a violent scene and I expose the other half of them, um, to images of, a nice dinner with lots of yummy things to eat. And then I give them a list of homonyms, words that could have two different meanings, and ask them to interpret the word to see what association first pops into their heads. And if I say, not I don't show the spelling, but if I pronounce the word beat, if you've been exposed to the violent scene, you're gonna be more likely to think that I'm referring to something hitting something else. If you've been subliminally exposed to the pictures of a nice dinner, you're gonna be more likely to think it's a red vegetable. And we can show statistically that, that even though the subliminal information was never conscious, it influences what we come to experience a few minutes later.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Now I think this goes on um, all the time. All of our perceptions are actually preceded. When I, when I see the picture of Harrison and get some idea of the kind of glasses he has and stuff the The split second before I know that I'm looking at a pair of glasses, there are some photons on my retina that I never experience as such. But they help me be a little bit quicker to realize in a in a second I'm going what I'm looking at as a pair of glasses. They've and we call those things in psychology, we call those things primes. subliminal stimuli act as primes. They prime a pump in a certain direction. And the first sight theory proposes that even before subliminal primes come extrasensory primes. And they also serve to orient us toward the quickest possible understanding of what's about to develop around us. In other words, they serve, they serve our survival interests and they serve our, they've served our evolutionary interests. Um, they make us a bit quicker to know what's what so we can respond in the best way to it. Um, So I use this analogy to subliminal perception a lot in the theory. Mm -hmm. And um, I think actually that ESP works exactly the way subliminal perception does, that they're both innately unconscious, that they're both going on all the time, and they're both extremely useful and and potentially predictable if we can set up the right kind of experiments.
1: Right, and so that uh, that brings to mind some things from the book. Um, maybe to get into a bit more about how that subliminal process works, um, and to tie it into something you just said about how psi works. So those those subliminals that we're receiving all the time are the primes, the 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 first things that we're perceiving before we're at, well before we're actually consciously perceiving them. Um, they they affect us in certain ways unconsciously it might be they are that our heart starts beating faster or that um, you know their our blood pressure gets higher um we may we may get into a a mood it might be a happy mood or a sad mood and if we're if we're not aware as we usually aren't of what is actually influencing us all we have are these signs basically in our bodies and in in our in our own minds um and these would be akin to what you called the inadvertencies in in psi processing, right so we have a a feeling or a hunch or um or we just feel nervous for some reason, and in the case of subliminals, that would be because of what um because of something that's directly in our physical environment that is influencing us in a way that we're not consciously aware of but the the first sight theory goes one step before that that even the things that aren't in our immediate physical environment um, that we can't see with our eyes or, or feel with our hands are also influencing us and might have a similar effect on on our physiology basically so yes yes okay. there's
0: a physiological level to all this absolutely mm-hmm. uh we know from some of the interesting uh research on subliminal perception that um uh, if if you if you expose a, a threatening scene, a, a, what something that would look dangerous to a person if they could see it full out, if you expose them to something like that subliminally, what you'll see very quickly, and this precedes any notice, anything you can notice in terms of your mood or anything conscious at all, we know that glucose starts to ramp up. In the, um, in the brainstem. And the reason we need glucose is that it's preparing us for the action that we're going to have to take pretty soon if this dangerous thing really, really develops. Now, we're never conscious of that glucose, never. Mm-hmm. Um, but we can become a little later conscious of the fact that we're kind of aroused, that, that we're a little more alert, we're a little more vigilant, a little more ready to fight or flee. Um, And the same thing has been found to happen with NESP research. If um, uh, the experimenter tracks various indications of of, um, arousal, um, neurological arousal and brain activity, EEG, or various the ways you can see this happening, uh, MRIs, um, brain chemistry. You can, um, if you have a person watching a series of pictures on a screen, here's a picture, it's gone. Here's another picture, it's gone. Here's another picture, it's gone. Now the person doesn't know this, but three pictures down the road, there's going to be a rattlesnake that looks like it's about to jump at you. And before that rattlesnake is exposed, it usually starts about a second before, you'll start to see in these measures of arousal, you'll start to see that they're ramping up. Now this even precedes the subliminal because yes, that snake appears three pictures down the road, but when it appears hasn't been determined yet, and it's gonna be determined by a random event generator, which is gonna be triggered right before the next slide. And so at that point, no one in the universe knows when the snake is gonna happen. When it happens is only determined by this random process. And so it's not anything that can be known in a sensory way. And so why does this arousal start to ramp up at an unconscious level before the decision to show the snake has even been made? Well, that's what we call precognitive arousal. or um, Well, there are various names for it, but you you get the picture that um, we're showing that we respond to something physiologically a little before a little before it happens, but a little before it's even been decided to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so we know this is going on subliminally, and th- these processes are unconscious. They're subliminal, and they're extrasensory. And I, we're assuming that the extrasensory feeds into the subliminal, which feeds into my quick awareness that I'd better get out of the way because here's a snake.
1: hmm mm-hmm. Well, in these lab examples, um, most of the lab experiments that you find are um, fairly artificial, right? People are being put in situations that aren't really something that they'd that they'd actually experience in their everyday lives. Um, mm-hmm. but when you when you look at the oh, so I wanted to just say one point on that. So when you have these artificial lab conditions, I think that might be and I think you might get into this in the book. Um, I can't remember for sure, is that when you have these artificial lab conditions, the results you get are kind of influenced by the fact that these are these um, mostly artificial s- situations. And for the most part, um, more, I'd say, mundane than real life. So you're looking at these subliminals, for instance, of the the snake, the picture of the snake that's about to jump at you. Whereas in real life, if you're walking down you know a trail in the woods and there's an actual snake, um, there's a bit more... Um, You've got a bit more skin in the game in that sense uh, that uh, that the the danger is real. Or if you're walking down a, an alley at night and there's a you know there's a guy planning on mugging you that's just across uh, just around the corner. Right there are there are higher stakes in real life. So yeah, yeah.
0: so the higher stakes mm-hmm. for sure. So um, the ahead. the reason we use the lab is that we don't have portable MRI machines that are right. first, <laughs> very hard to to see what happens on those occasions that, hopefully, very rare occasions, they're about to get mugged. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we can extrapolate from these right. little minor situations to um, what what probably is going on in a in a full scale way. And if you um, if you look at the experiences that have been reported of of ESP, but things that people consider ESP experiences, dreams that come true, or um, hunches that are true, or visions that somehow tell you something real. Um, Way a disproportionate number of them have to do with emergencies, and often with death. Mm -hmm. They're often the death or the danger, great danger of someone you love which is about as urgent a situation as, as you can have, or it may be an imminent life-threatening danger to yourself. Now we we know that when, when you just look naturalistically at the kinds of stories people report, um, most of them, a disproportionate number, are of that sort, which you might say, well maybe that's just an, an error in remembering Uh, We're going to remember the more dramatic things. They're going to make more of an impression. We're going to stick in our memories better. They make better stories. Um, What the elaborate research helps us do, the lab research reassures us that those just aren't reporting errors or remembering errors. They're actually the way nature (laughs) is working. and of course, there are many advantages to the lab, even though we're dealing with small scale phenomena, um, we have all kinds of controls and measurements that we can do that you can't do and as, just, as life just naturally flows along. One thing I've noticed that um, if, if you take this research seriously as, as I do and other people I know in this field have come to, even if you start out pretty skeptically um, it makes you a little more alert to your own ongoing experience and I think it's probably made it easier for me to register important things and make make more of them make uh, credit them more readily since I know based on the the science that we have good reason to believe these things happen, and mm-hmm. in a way, are happening all the time. Mm-hmm.
1: Do you have any any examples you might be able to share about that, or?
0: Well, I, I think I think you said I'm a I'm a therapist as well as a parapsychologist, and. Um. um yeah i know i i would say about a, as being a therapist i i don't think most of my my patients w- would think of me at all as being a psychic therapist or um uh, or even a new age therapist i mean i'm i'm um uh, i'm pretty in traditional um mainstream kind of therapist but i am informed by this
2: mm-hmm.
0: this knowledge of the world um, and so, yeah, I, I I was working with a woman a while back who was um, had been extremely depressed, and we had an understanding that that she was going to be okay and that she was going to keep her appointment. I think um, like a day and a half. From this moment, I'm I'm thinking about, and so I had every reason. This person had never broken a promise or anything, and so I had every reason to think that she was basically going to be all right. But uh, as an evening went on, I found myself thinking about her and getting kind of agitated and concerned about her, and um, started putting in calls to her, and then got more alarmed when I couldn't reach her and um and it it was a ended up being a pretty dramatic series of events that unfolded through the evening and into the next day but basically um uh, she had given me no warning that maybe subliminally or something but she had given me absolutely no warning that she became very um Uh, determined to kill herself, and but the, the the story ends well, and I won't tell many details of it. But basically, the fact that I took myself seriously, that I was having this semi-crazy worry about her for no no real particular reason, that it did help me avert a, a suicide that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. for sure was going to happen. Um, <laughs> So once in a while, there's something like that that um, uh, where it shows its real use, and it also shows how the, the more urgent the situation, the more likely you are to become aware of some itch that's that's uh, unusual and maybe ought to be scratched.
1: Right. Yeah. That um, that leads into uh, the importance of the the research that you've done and the other parapsychological findings and the importance of them for our safety and for the safety of others in order to have this kind of an understanding of this level of the of the psyche and in your books you've are in you have discussed the fact that parapsychology is kind of the orc uh, the orphan of psychology could you talk a little bit about why you think that
0: well it's been a I, that's been something I've tried to understand ever since I, I, I came to Duke when I was um, you know, a kid to go to college because JB Ryan was doing his parapsychology lab at Duke and I was fascinated with it and kind of skeptical about it and wanted to find out what they were doing and um and I got very involved with them and here I am to this day. Um but at the same time, I was taking psychology classes at Duke. And in my psych classes, I was hearing that this was terrible nonsense and that it, you certainly needed to avoid it if you ever wanted a career in psychology and um, that these people were crazy and blah, blah, blah. And then I'd spend time with Ryan and his colleagues. And they were real sane people, very careful, very self-critical, very thoughtful and their work was really good. And I'd go back to the psychologist and they'd tell me it was all wrong. And I've, I've been trying to make sense of this ever since. And I, I ran into my own, uh, um, I, I ended up paying some prices myself for having avowed an interest in this and some um, uh, conducted having a history of research in this field. Um, it's It's kind of a kiss of death for um for someone who wants a professional academic career in in science and um why in the world is that so? What is so awful and dangerous about this work um, I mean if it is mistaken and if it is a big error that's going to waste everybody's time of course that's fine it's good to find out and be done with it but the more i've looked into it the, the, the for sure the less it looks like that mm-hmm. and that's true of other people i know who spent years now investigating these things as carefully as they can they're they, they appreciate how difficult the, the work is but they're pretty sure it's real and important. And if this is a part of our nature and a part of how the world works, then it's pretty interesting to find out more about it. Mm
2: -hmm. So so
0: why is there this great animosity? I I don't know. There's one clinical theory that's interesting that that was put forth by a guy named, a psychiatrist named Jewel Eisenbud a number of years ago. He he thought that um, the reason people hate anything parapsychological so much is that it implies that um, for example say if if psychokinesis is real if if I can um, influence what random event generators do with just with my mind or I can, influence the physiological state of another person sitting in a room that i'm only seeing on closed circuit tv which is a kind of study that's been done lots of times if if we really have that power then when something bad happens that i really am kind of glad happened if someone i really don't like dies tragically then i want to feel that I have absolutely no responsibility in that event. I want to be free of guilt. And if you take psychokinesis seriously, then it's not so easy to be clear about things like that. And Eisenbud thought that was the main reason people are, are afraid and contemptuous of this field is that it's it implies this kind of expansion of personal responsibility that that scares us so i i don't i don't know if if, how much of the truth that explains but um i I think philosophically most scientists working scientists well philosophically most working scientists are not philosophical
2: Mm -hmm.
0: they they want to work within a framework that's set and they want to ask interesting questions within that framework in a very careful way. They're not that interested in questioning the framework.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: In fact, it's a big bother. It's it makes you nervous. And so parapsychology seems to threaten the framework of science in some basic ways that scientists don't like. If it's true, then it's pretty confusing and they don't know how to think about it. Now, one thing I was noticing for years was I would do my psychological research and I would do my parapsychological research and I would do my clinical work. And as I'd trade shift back and forth between these worlds, what I noticed was things weren't any different in these different worlds. Uh, We, you know, we've made a lot out of the differences. But but if you look at research on perception, and then look at research on extrasensory perception, it's a lot alike. Mm -hmm. We're finding a lot of the same patterns. um, A lot of the same variables are important in the same ways. And yet, when I would talk with one of these people about research, as long as I'm staying within the sensory realm, we're having this great conversation. Now, when I point out that, you know, the ESP experiment that I read that Dean Radin did uh, last year is just like this thing you're finding. What do you think about that? Well, they're mm, dead silent. You know, all of a sudden I'm a nutcase. <laughs> So, and that's a very puzzling thing and a frustrating thing. So why does the conversation have to stop when, when that comes up? So that's one reason I developed First Sight. I try to embed parapsychology within mainstream scientific psychology. And I think it fits pretty well. I try to make a case that it makes a lot of sense. What we know about Sigh makes a lot of sense in terms of all we've learned about how memory works, how perception works, how, how we make decisions, um, what kind of personalities we have, how engaged we want to be or not with other people. Uh, It relates real nicely with a lot of Mm -hmm. mainstream work and Mm -hmm. you don't need to change the language that much to move back and forth. So I wanted to point that out. And as far as I know, uh, although I sent it to, I sent the book to some people whose work I respect, I've not heard a syllable of response. So oh, hmm. I don't, I don't think I've worked any miracles in this respect, but it was something I am still hoping for that we can <clears throat> carry on kind of work together and, uh, respect each other's what we're adding. And, um, um, live in the same world and build up a picture of reality together. That's what science is all about.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, Jim, so some years ago, uh, I was coming back to uh, a semester of college uh, to a class that a professor taught uh, who I had gone to multiple times. He was well known yeah. to me, and uh, he taught uh, philosophy and, and film and politics, and a very bright, creative man. And uh, one day, he, uh, the first day of class actually of this new semester, he was very forthcoming about the fact that he had just gone through a a long, difficult bout of therapy, Mm -hmm. and um, in which uh, abuse that he had received as a child was discussed. This is something he was sharing quite openly with us. Wow. And he said to us that he, uh, the strangest thing happened, he felt like all of his. He felt like he had experienced all of this ESP since mm-hmm. his, um, since he'd begun the, this work on himself yeah. with the abuse. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, given who he was and the fact that I was open to the idea of ESP and therapy, mm-hmm. uh, th- this connection, which ties in very well with your work, uh, had been made for the first time uh, those decades ago
0: yeah
3: and um it it was just fascinating to me that he because he was a highly intelligent guy that he was aware of himself enough to to say and i really think it was the therapy that had uh that was part of the cause of my experiencing all of this esp um yeah so did did you yeah, want to
0: yeah. do i want to
3: would you like to comment on that or
0: Well um, I I try to address this in the theory partly that what we know say from research on um, subliminal information again um, is that when we are clear about what we're doing and how we want to do it and we're clear about what problem we're trying to solve and how we're trying to solve it. The mind is kind of focused in a way that the net we use to sample reality gets very, very narrow. And um, fear does that and certainty does that. when I know exactly what I'm looking at and what I'm doing and so forth, I don't need to draw on a broad range of information that I can interpret to help me make sense of it. And so what the mind automatically does when we're clear about things is it shuts almost everything out in favor of what I'm doing, what I'm thinking about, what I'm seeing, so forth. And, this kind of conceptual, effortful clarity um, makes, makes our, like I say, our shrinks our, our focal point.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, now what happens when, and fear does the same thing, because if you think about fear, what fear wants is, becomes very simple. When we're afraid, we want to know what it is we're afraid of and what to do about it. Are the range of things we're interested in becomes very, very narrow, hyper-focused. And when we're afraid enough, we don't sample widely. And so, for example, subliminal stimuli, when a person is afraid, won't have any effect. It won't register. It won't affect what associations you make in five minutes. Or if it does, here's an even more interesting point. If you do see an effect, what you see is a reverse effect. That is, the material you've been primed to is going to turn up less than it should by chance. That's because the mind unconsciously is maintaining its focus by not just not attending to almost everything, but even reversing it if it threatens to be to uh, if, if it threatens too much to want to kind of enter into our rooms and we see exactly the same thing in parapsychology if we're anxious we not only don't respond to the extrasensory information if we respond at all we respond to it negatively mm. and what happens when we're going through the world every day and we know exactly what we're doing which is the way we want life to be, you know? We want life to be predictable and easy and comfortable. And um, I want to be able to get up in the morning and know what I'm going to do the rest of the day. And I don't want too many surprises. That's the way, uh, unless we're kind of unusual people, that's the way most of us like to live. Now, what happens when that is radically shaken up? so that we no longer know what's up. We no longer know who we are exactly. Um, Our ideas about ourselves have really been wrenched around. Um, You see this in acute grief. You see this after the loss of someone really important. Uh, You see this after breakups. Um, There... um, (laughs) Another psychoanalyst who was involved in parapsychology a number of years ago um, said that, called this uh, the existential shift. That if something shakes us up at the deepest level so that our sense of ourselves and of reality is really kind kind of blown apart. We talk about blowing your mind, you know, if something has blown your mind then people report lots of ESP experiences mm. Mm. and lots of PK experiences. Um, it's as if we've lost our focus and we're casting around a very big net and where the mind is wide open and looking for um, anything that might be useful to help pull ourselves and our worlds together. Mm. Um, and I've, I, I I've, I've been th- I went through a period of a lot of upheaval a number of years ago, where a lot of things that I had thought would be true about the rest of my life were blown apart. And I had during that period, just a rush of psychic experiences that this was not theoretical anymore. I mean, stuff was happening that was um, dramatic. And um, obvious. And then when life settled down, those things settled down too. Right. <clears throat> That's so I don't. Know. It, it's 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 not an uncommon observation, but it's mm-hmm. it's not a common observation because we're not we don't go around. Most of us want to be blown apart all the time.
1: Right. And that that might actually. Well, I'm reminded of a couple things, and I think this this might be part of an explanation for. Why um, most mainstream psychologists reject this kind of thing. that for whatever reasons, for whatever reasons they actually reject it, whether they are um, um, emotional on the level of uh, fear of psychic influence, or whether they're rooted in the philosophical assumptions that have gathered over the last 100, 150 years and that just influence um, psychologists on like a, a basic worldview level. Um, that, that they're unconscious of, whatever the case, whatever number of things there are, they basically have a personality structure that is pretty solid. Um, they yeah. they've yeah. Tra- entrained themselves in, with this kind of hyper focus, um, most of which, like I said, is unconscious. They've they've got their their focus, they've got their um, their binoculars they're looking through, and it's yeah. only through a, a disintegration of that previous structure that the that the new the newness that that lets the newness come in, that lets something new um, come into the con come, come into that level of consciousness. And until that point, it's like the 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 shutters are up and uh, and nothing new can come in. So it's almost as if um, all all of these all of these uh, all the critics would need a a life changing um, you know shock to their system to actually be able to to then look at the data.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean. I- It would be an unethical experiment, but it'd be fun to do, but um, um, we can see a milder version of this with, there are people who, scientists like a lot of certainty. I mean, scientists tend to be not especially creative people. I mean, we think of scientists as being Newton and Einstein and so forth, but those were rare birds, most scientists. Are not particularly creative what they are is real smart and real analytical and they like to ask really careful questions in really smart ways and to do it really well and they're and they're good at it which is why science is so productive but they're not especially open-ended. Now who is open-ended? Well look at artists Artists kind of a lot of artists kind of like to wake up not knowing what's going to happen. They want to you know, go into the studio and they they want to be able to see what pops up, and they want to be able to uh, not know what's going to be on this canvas. Or if you're a composer, you don't you don't want to necessarily know exactly um, how this score is going to unfold. Um, uh, you're an actor and you've got a new role and you don't wanna have it figured out in advance exactly how you're gonna inhabit that role. Um, You wanna go through a process of letting it develop and letting it speak to you. And so, I mean, artists start talking this kind of way that it's gonna happen to you. And if we put artists into ESP experiments, what we find is they do a lot better than scientists. Um they'll, in fact, the, the very intellectual analytical types, again, if they express inadvertently, if they uh, indicate some kind of that the ESP information is registered in some way, it's liable to be reversed, turned into a negative direction. On the other hand you put a really effective creative artist in that kind of experiment and you'll find much stronger clearer evidence that the information is registering. Um, And this is one of the nice findings in parapsychology that the the very best performances in our experiments have tended to be highly effective artists. Hmm. Uh, One of the best Performances on record in an experiment. Now, when anecdotes are a different thing, but in an experiment where you can count things and control things, um, a group of Juilliard students, um, as far as I know, still hold the um, the record of highest performance in an experiment. Um, mm-hmm. Group of Edinburgh artists, fring, um, fringe artists in Edinburgh, also performed at a similar kind of level. Mm-hmm. So if you want to have, conduct an ESP experiment and have strong results, um, recruit creative people, because they're they're interested in a dilated focus. Uh, their minds are used to bringing in random stuff from who knows where. And that random stuff from who knows where is where psych comes in.
1: Mm-hmm. I want to go back to one of the first things you said early in the show, Jim, um, about when you were giving the overview of first sight and describing how psi is basically—I can't remember the, the exact way you phrased it—but at the base of consciousness and it's, it's instrumental in like the the actual construction of consciousness. And mm-hmm. this reminded me of um, I just recently read uh, an an online article that you'd written f- um, maybe f- five years ago or so on. Um, it was about uh, pharmaceuticals and hallucinations, and you were, oh, we're- yeah you were describing um, an interaction with a, a patient of yours who had been um, I can't remember if she was having an acute psychotic episode or if it was a, a more of a long term thing, but you you described how you how you kind of explained to her your view of, of what was happening. Because I believe she asked, oh, well, is, is, like, how, how am I supposed to think about this? Are my hallucinations not real? Or what is real? And you, you gave um, an, an explanation. No, correct me if I'm wrong, because I don't remember exactly how you phrased it. That for you, you, you weren't seeing the things you were seeing um, because uh, your, your, your perception was being constructed pretty much strictly out of the, like, the objects that were in the room. But that, for her, she was seeing something that you couldn't see, because something like because there there was an an extra influence, an extra emotional um, um, importance or valence that was being introduced into her construction of of reality, into the conscious like uh, perceptions that she was she was looking at. So this this just the the two the one made me think of the other because. Um, if um, it gets it gets not only to psi in general, but just the nature of consciousness and how um, how we actually construct it. So in the case of well, maybe you could describe just in a bit more detail the how you would lay out the construction of um, an experience, maybe just an, an ordinary humdrum everyday life experience, and then uh, a, uh, an actual hallucination and the the differences between those two um, perceptions of reality, basically.
0: Yeah. Thank you, Harrison. I I appreciate you bringing that in because that actually was um, um, a first sight point of view in which I wasn't mentioning anything psychic because Mm -hmm. I was talking in the context of (coughs) psychiatry rather than Parapsychology, and I didn't want people to assume I was as crazy as a psychotic person, um, and ruin our discussion. But I was applying a first sight point of view to to how to understand an hallucination. Now, yeah, I I was I was sitting in a room with someone, and we're seeing almost everything the same, um, except she's seeing microphones around that i don't see and she's seeing people outside in the parking lot who are probably spies who um keep leaving and coming back and looking in the window and so forth and it's all very suspicious and i don't particularly see those people i might see cars come and go but but i don't see the repetitive things that she says she's seen so Partly we're seeing different things, partly we're interpreting things differently, but th- there's a definite, there's a visual hallucination going on here too. There's, that is, is that a microphone? I don't see a microphone. Uh, is that a lamp? Yeah, we both see the same lamp. And she asked, well, are, are these things real? And that's partly, that wasn't just an innocent question about, oh, please explain to me the nature of reality, Doctor. It was, you know, do you think I'm crazy or am I going to, can can I afford to stay in this room or maybe you're one of them and I better get out. And what I said was, now I'm not merging here an hallucination with the world of the psychic in the sense that someone might jump to okay, if you're psychotic, that just means you're open to psychic reality and, and there really are ghosts that are lurking outside and you just become able to see the ghosts and stuff. I'm not assuming anything like that. And I, I, don't, I don't think, I mean, if there are ghosts, I don't know anything about them. Um, no, what I'm saying is that we all construct reality that we think it's just given, but it's not just given, it's actually constructed. And that since I'm in kind of a normal state of mind right now, what I'm constructing my experience of reality out of is almost entirely the sensory sensations that are coming at me now. And so uh, these photons from the lamp are registering and I'm seeing a lamp, which you do too. Now, there's some things you are that I'm not, you're terrified at a profound level that I'm not terrified. And when we're that terrified, we start, that enters into how we're constructing things too. And so I start to see things that I'm afraid of. I I start to see gas coming in under the door. I start to see um, I start to see terrible, dangerous things. And it's because of the depth of my terror. And if someone who's in, an, you'd say this is an acute psychotic state, someone who's acutely psychotic, <clears throat> at some level, as far as I can tell, at some level, such a person is deeply, profoundly terrified. And their fear is such that it's entering into the construction of their experience. Mm. Now is my experience real and their experience not real? No. It, it's always real as, one's as real as the other. Um, I wouldn't say that mine is real in the sense that it's simple reality. I'm constructing my lamp just like you are. But I'm constructing my lamp out of just sensory material you're constructing your lamp out of century material plus things that are suggested to you by how profoundly disorganized and frightened you are and this person had been working also Harrison you mentioned uh profound trauma uh, or someone mentioned no um you know, the, the professor who was traumatized and everything opened up, this person had been working on early trauma, too, and was pretty much flooded by it. Uh, and was finding it horribly disorganizing and frightening. And so, all this material, some from the past, some from just how stirred up my, my um, Um, you know, neurological system is um, all of that's factoring into my experience. Um, So that was a kind of, I'm making this more confusing than it seemed to her actually at that moment. And she kind of thought it made sense. And we ended up with a sense of, well, yeah, it's, it's all equally real. I'm not, I'm not, I don't think you're crazy. I'm not, you don't need to leave. Um, but yeah, our experience is somewhat different. Uh, we should we should credit both of them. Mm-hmm. And blah blah blah. Does that make sense?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Now, <laughs> well, to I, I want to keep on with this construction of reality for a bit and and go go through some more examples. So that's an that's a case of um, that's a really extreme case of like you said, acute psychosis and um, multiple yeah. recurring visual hallucinations but i'm sure we've all experienced something on a much lower level where we mistake something for something else so for Mm -hmm. instance when we're i already used the example i think that i used this in a previous show where we discussed this um walking through the woods and you see um it might be a rope that's on the on the side of the trail and you look at Mm -hmm. it and for a split second well you're you're you've already moved away by the time you you realize what you're looking at, but you might actually see, like, be pretty darn certain that you've seen a snake, and uh, yeah. and so not not only is your body already moving away, and you kind of catch yourself in that state, but visually you might even see that snake. And I'm, I'm I, I can, yeah. you know, yeah. to me, I've had pl- plenty of examples where you, where I've seen a shadow, and I've been sure that I've seen that shadow in a particular shape, and then once the the startle. Once I get over the startle and the initial fear, I look at it and it actually isn't how I thought that it was. So there's yeah. in those moments something is constructing that that image for me that I'm then reacting to. Um, yeah. okay. but could you could you explain the construction of examples of that sort of perception, like when you're when you're mistaken about something that you see? What do you think's going on there?
0: Well, um, now I would say that the more jumpy a person is, the more anxious a state of mind you're in to begin with is going to affect how likely it is that you're going to see that shadowy thing as a snake.
1: So you've been primed. If, if you're
0: if you're a little more anxious to begin with, you're going to be a little more likely to see the snake. But, you know, we've... Um, there seems to be an inherited tendency here that um, uh, presumably our ancestors that lived long enough to help produce us, um, had some kind of healthy fear of snakes and didn't, didn't die too soon to, um, to be our ancestors. Um, And so there's, there's something of evolutionary value about being real quick to see a snake if it's hiding in the leaves and snakes are really good not consciously of course but they've evolved to be able to look a lot like leaves Um, you know a copperhead in the leaves is almost invisible um, because it's so well camouflaged and but it's certainly to our interest to be able to see that copperhead so the more important it is that we see a certain thing if it's there, um, the more likely our um, sort of false positive rate becomes. Mm-hmm. The higher our false positive rate becomes, the more likely we are to see that thing even if it isn't there. Um, if something is really unimportant, our false positive rate falls way down. We're very unlikely to see if, if it's there. We may be even. Uh, so unlikely to see it that we won't see it if it is there, yeah. Uh, if, it's, if it's neutral enough or harmless enough or, or different enough from our interests, right? Then actually, it gets into what I was talking before about negative perception.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: If something is really contrary, it's harmless, so it's not important in that way, and it's really contrary to what I'm focusing on. I can say sail by um something that, you know, my wife says later, Well, di- did not you see that by the side of the road? No, I didn't see that at all. I was thinking about so and so. And uh sh- she wasn't absorbed in mm, thinking about something in that same kind of way. So she was much quicker to notice that unusual thing by the side of the road. Mm-hmm. And uh
1: Yeah. yeah. So well, so in a case like that, where we have those false positives, um, if we are, if we do have a kind of um, sigh going on beneath the surface at, at every time, would it be correct or incorrect to say that on some level you already know that it isn't a snake, or is that kind of or or is that unknown at at in the process of constructing this um, you know this image?
0: Well, this really raises an interesting question. Um, and it's true of memory right before we remember something. It's true of subliminal perception right before we see what we're being exposed to. And it's true with ESP. Um, when something is in that preconscious place, we want to think of it as a kind of knowledge. And it's like knowledge because it's gonna prime us in the right direction, but it's not knowledge. It isn't that we know there's a snake by ESP, and then we're quicker to see the snake. Now, what I think it's misleading to say that we know anything uh, at an unconscious level. Um, I use the word prehension, which is a construct I took from Alfred North Whitehead, which he uses for both conscious and non conscious entities. Um, apprehension means a grasping of the meaning of something,
2: mm-hmm.
0: but we don't grasp its meaning in the sense that we know it. We, we grasp it in some other sense that we can't. Name because all of our names have to do with things we know. Mm-hmm. When we start to try to use language, we're stuck in the realm of conscious experience. Now, there is a pre conscious level of experience that's both extrasensory and sensory, and it sure acts a lot like knowledge but it isn't. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, how do we then think about it? I think we just have to think about it as something that's going on that's gonna have certain predictable effects. Now, what it seems to do, it's as if the mind has a kind of general map of what's gonna unfold. If you have a very crude map, it might lead you the mountains of South Carolina, but it won't lead you to a certain address on a certain street. Mm -hmm. It's going to show you the territory, but not the specifics. Mm -hmm. And that's the way ESP seems to work. And that's also the way these other pre-conscious processes seem to work. They orient us in the right directions, but they don't give us the details. And if you look at people, uh there are there are some people who've gotten real good at um producing useful psychic information um i i've gotten i've been privileged over the years to get to know joe mcmonegal who's uh, was probably the star remote viewer for the army intelligence program at uh, stargate and um, what Joe says is that he almost never gets a clear picture of anything. Now, what he gets are little bits and snatches. He'll get an angle. He'll get a darkness and a lightness. He'll do sketches that start to, that are just kind of random looking, but they're what he's what he's getting. Um, he, de- he's, he doesn't talk much in emotional terms, but other people who, who do will say, you know, they get little bits of mood, they get little bits of feeling, and they get um, little hints of um, some emotional content. Mm-hmm. Um, but they don't get the details. And Joe says, for example, don't ask me to tell you a number. Don't ask me for a social security number or an address. We We don't do numbers and I think numbers are only specifics. They're not generality. They're not these hints of meaning. That isn't what a number is. A number is a precise thing where or it's or it's not a number.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, now there might be a moreness or lessness. There might be a sense of quantity in that kind of way and Joe might get um, an address that's you know bigger than bigger than normal or smaller than normal but if he tries to tell you the precise address or the precise license plate number he's he's probably not going to be right Mm -hmm. if he tells you to go to a certain uh where where the trees stick out in a certain way on top of an odd kind of hill that sort of looks like this then um and you start to look around to see where those things might be then before you know it he's leading you to something that you're after Mm. and you get there um so what kind of knowledge is it? well i don't think it is knowledge it's something like knowledge that we can only call knowledge but the second we do it we're misunderstanding
1: maybe a way of Putting it might be that you when you when you prehend it when you grasp it you're you're grasping it as a possibility it hasn't yeah. you're not grasping an actuality yet so all all you right. have at that point are are possibilities here's here's a possibility yeah. it might it might be weighted more than other possibilities but it's only when you when you see it in and it gets actualized like in sensory experience in a lot of cases that it locks into place mm-hmm. until that point it locks into place as knowledge. Until that point, it was just it was just a possibility. So going back yeah, to my example,
0: maybe, maybe a possibility with a degree of probability.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that's a better way of putting it. So yeah. when you're walking through the when you're walking through the woods, um, pre um, pre consciously, you know, on that psi level, you, there is in the case of the in the case of the the snake not being there, you're not getting any any. Um, any pings of potential danger. So in that case, when you, when you see it, um, the, you're, you're reacting to sensory information that is, that is priming your consciousness. Um, that's well, saying, oh, oh, well here, this is important. Um, this is potentially dangerous. We haven't figured out, you know, the brain cells are <laughs> talking. We haven't yeah. figured this out yet. So, so be prepared because it could be something. We don't have yeah. the information to, to know for sure yet. We don't have the knowledge. Because we need that, we need to have that that link or that that syncing up between the perception and um, well, the perception and the reality to to kind of lock into into place as knowledge. And in the case of when there is something, when there is a danger, it's it's still a, a possibility. You might have a, like the presentiment or the 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 feeling that something's dangerous, and and you might not actually be reacting to something that is actually there. So you might you might um, Enter the situation, perceive something, and see that what what you were primed for might not actually be there. So, okay, that was a false a false positive on the on the the preconscious yeah. level. So, there's all these different yeah. variations on what could be going on. And I was one of the things I wanted to comment on because you you brought it up how you use the word prehension. Um, that's one of the reasons I I really liked your book. One of many is um, is that link to to Whitehead because uh, I've read a bit of Whitehead and and a, a bunch of stuff about Whitehead kind of secondary secondary literature and right away reading your book I saw um all kinds of ways in which your your theory can basically fit into a whiteheadian philosophy and I just wanted to bring up one point um about that he that he brings up a one point that he makes about prehension and even um negative perception as you call it that um, he, through the logic of his reasoning and coming to the philosophy that he did, he he basically came to the conclusion that um, it must be true that every entity, every every being, every every thing that we can think of, every existent, which he called like an actual occasion of experience, basically oh. on on a preconscious level, it, um, experiences everything. That everything mm-hmm. in the entire universe is affecting every center of the universe, every point, every, every being. So in, if I just use myself as an example, on some level, every particle in the universe is um, having an effect on me, on, on my experience. But the vast majority of that is, is blocked out as irrelevant. And he called that a negative prehension because it mm-hmm. is not relevant to, to my being here in this moment, at this, at, at this moment, in this place in time. Because everything is irrelevant it has no meaning to it has no meaning to me no relevance for what I am actually doing the, and and for the most part the things that are going to be relevant um, because we are biological beings are going to be the things in our immediate environment um, where the where we interact with people like that's how that's how we live is through our interaction with our immediate environment and then on a on a less um, a less, more explicitly physical level, we the the next most important thing, like you mentioned, are our loved ones, and when we so this is getting this is, Whitehead doesn't say this, but I'm kind of um, yeah m- merging into your your perspective on this that our our loved ones are important to us. So on a on a level of perception that isn't directly of the physical environment that we're in. Yeah. that that becomes that becomes relevant that extra sensory information um that we don't have immediate access to with our sensory perception is highly relevant to us so yeah. that's going to be what we're most what we're most receptive to is the the situation that our loved ones are in that are that are closest the, the, the people closest to us are in so does, yes. does yeah does that kind of make sense
0: yeah totally and um i wish i had um I wish I had actually had a more serious understanding of Whitehead. <clears throat> I drew that idea of prehension from a secondary source. And mm-hmm. I knew enough to attribute it to Whitehead, but unfortunately I, I hadn't really read very much. But it's been pointed out to me since what you're you're saying, that there is a lot of affinity and Um, that's an area where I'm trying to find some time to do some more reading. And just by coincidence, that's really interesting. Um, A a book just came out from, um, based on a conference I took part in a few years ago, um, in a a Whiteheadian context. Hmm. And I've got a chapter in this book that summarizes some of the ideas of of my theory and following my chapter um a a man named john buchanan uh who's a psychologist and a philosopher um puts the whole thing into into a whiteheadian context Mm. and i'm very flattered by the comparisons you know and i and i want to learn more about it i i think um it's a it's a natural, it seems to be a very natural kind of merger and extension of, of yeah. um, first sight theory could give some empirical substance to some of Whitehead's ideas. And, and um, I like, um, you know, when Whitehead talks about the whole cosmos, um, he has a panentheistic um, understanding of everything that actually makes sense to me and uh, feels like a good direction for for um, us to think together.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and yes, I, I think he's, you know, he's not a, a, a scientist. Well, I mean, you can't say Whitehead wasn't a scientist. He was a brilliant scientist on a conceptual level. Uh, he wasn't a research laboratory scientist, yeah. Um, but um, yeah, I, it's it's very interesting that he might offer a kind of framework for understanding how everything could be speaking to everything the way it seems to be. Mm-hmm. Well, in the first sight, I just put it as a preposterous assumption that's necessary if you're gonna. Play this game and follow along, understanding this theory. You have to assume that at an unconscious level, the mind is in touch with virtually everything. And Whitehead gives such an elegant and sensible way of thinking about that, which I didn't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, I've learned a lot from this essay of of John Buchanan. Like I say, the book is. Some of your people might be. I'll plug the book. It's, yeah, go ahead. Um, yeah, I hadn't called, heard of it yet. Uh, no, it just came out. Um,
1: well, we've we've got it in. I, th- I believe you included uh, the name in your bio that you sent to us, which we'll be including.
0: I did include that. that. Yes, yeah, so, so we'll
1: be including that in the in the show description. Actually, if we we're just going to open it up right now, uh, scroll down there. Um, Rethinking Consciousness: Extraordinary Challenges for Contemporary Science, edited by Buchanan and and, 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 and yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah, um, and it's 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 a nice collection, and with other material in it of a kind of parapsychological, transpersonal, psychedelic kind of mm-hmm. um, stuff, it's cool. various challenges. But the, the, those two chapters, mine and Buchanan's, bear on on what you're saying, and I'm very intrigued with this and want to come to understand it better myself
1: well the way i got into that originally was um or when i first encountered whitehead was through um a book a couple of books by david ray griffin um one of which was on parapsychology i can't remember the name of it off the top of my head but it was one book that he devoted to parapsychology where he basically he went through he he had a um or he has a a great Um, understanding of the literature and he's read most of it like um when he got into it he he said he spent um just like weeks and weeks in in all these libraries just reading all everything he could find on it and so he he's a a whiteheadian so he places it all in that framework so he wrote one on parapsychology and then one on consciousness called unsnarling the world Knot, um which is more more broadly um about consciousness and um um, dealing with the hard problem of consciousness, with but but if you if you check out those books, um, you'll see that um, at the root of his explanation of consciousness is his Whiteheadian um, notion of of prehension. Um, just to put it really simply, this is you know this without getting into all the details, it basically says that well one of Whitehead's arguments is that in order for sensory perception to be possible. There needs to be non-sensory perception underneath it that allows sensory perception to be possible. And just a very simplified way of thinking about it is: when you have a, um, a sense, a sensory perception of like impulses from your nerves going to your brain, um, yeah. it doesn't make sense to think of your brain perceiving the the nerve impulses and forming an image. Something needs to be perceiving your brain. Um, Receiving the the impulses, like like I said, it's a simplified um, yeah, yeah, um, argument. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there needs to be something that at some level. There needs to be a non sensory perception of the sensory um, inputs, because otherwise mm-hmm. it's just sensory to sensory to sensory. Like it, well, it's just physical to physical to physical. There needs to be um, a a conscious subject that then receives the the data, the information from the senses, um, and so he's. So Griffin's explanation or argument for for his position on consciousness starts with a non sensory um, level of consciousness of which sensory perception is just a a mode of perception. Um, It's just one mode.
0: Yeah, well, thanks for telling me the um, the the second book, I don't know it actually at that conference. I bought Griffin's book on parapsychology and read it after I got home. Hmm. Um, and I was intrigued at the at all the parallels that, yeah. that, that out there. And uh, and again I had that same feeling of wish I'd wishing I'd known more yeah. about I wanted when I wrote my book. <clears throat> um, and what you're saying about consciousness is right. What, whatever whatever that prehension is, that transaction is that's unconscious, that involves the extended world that's beyond the senses it has to do with meaning it's not just meaningless stuff Mm -hmm. it's not just chemicals bouncing onto chemicals um now of course whitehead would say well even molecules are are sentient in a certain way which is something i hadn't imagined one might think
2: Mm -hmm.
0: but anyway um there are meanings out there which we are what we're prehending is meanings now if you prehend a meaning isn't that the same thing as saying you know something no no it isn't because that's consciousness Mm
2: -hmm.
0: and all this is forever and ever and ever pre-conscious Mm -hmm. Um, that's why i say over and over that we don't have an esp experience what we have is an interpretation of the inadvertent implications of extrasensory information. And this is true of mediums and psychics like Joe McMonagall or, or, um, anybody else that you're not getting the straight thing in the sense that I'll pick up a piece of paper and know what I'm reading. Mm-hmm. It, it, you don't, that's not the way it works at this level of reality. Right if if someone is saying if someone tells you <clears throat> that they can read something psychically that way then as far as i know they're trying to fool you or fooling themselves one, yeah one or the yeah you know, they're fooling themselves one or mm-hmm. the other
1: the oh um what was i going to say oh about the um I want I wanted to get to that idea in the book on on meaning um and how you have a good you have you put it in in good in several good ways in the book and there's there's good sections where you talk about it how basically the universe is it seems like the universe is a world of meaning and um and that's really what we're in, on the most fundamental level that's that's what we're encountering and then but then it well I'd have to reread the sections in your book where you talk about it, because I might be conflating what you're saying with what, what some other people say about it. Um, but what I wanted to bring up, maybe we can get into that. What I wanted to bring up is that um, just a couple of weeks ago, we, we interviewed a scholar of <clears throat> the uh, Sufi mystic Ibn Arabi, um, um, Su- Sufi mystic from the 1200s. And one of the things cuz we've been reading some of that stuff recently and one of the things that struck that oh, stood I
0: read, out I read Rumi and Hafiz oh. every time I get a
1: chance oh great so one of yes. the things one of the things in that worldview is um i believe this was in i first read this in one of uh, William Chittick's books on Ibn Arabi um and it's the levels of the levels of reality in the the Sufi system and basically at the at the lower level is the sensory um physical reality Um, in the middle is the image the imaginal realm the imaginal world and then there's the essence there's the level of meaning and in the higher the higher world and so what happens in the the mystic visions that um, uh, a sufi saint or any saint or any any prophet experiences is the is the meaning from above that then gets essentially filtered through the imaginal realm And takes the form of symbols and images, and and then is presented to the the person, the recipient, in a sensory form. So Ibn Arabi gives examples of when he would um, go into visions and meet the prophets. That the the prophets that were speaking with him were the the, were taking a sensory form in his consciousness, in his perception of Mm -hmm. uh, of a meaning. So the meaning was basically taking a form that he was experiencing. And that um, when revisiting your book, um, I was seeing some connections there in the way that this that this oh, yeah. process seems to go on, right? Where you have the you have the meaning and then um, this it's like the in first sight you have the extra sensor extra perceived information or prehended that takes the those sensory forms, those image, those imaginal forms, like in remote viewing, where they're just snippets. You have, you might have symbols of something. You might have something that alludes to something else, but isn't the thing uh, in yeah. itself. Yeah. And it needs like to take the, those the notion, forms. Yeah,
0: mm-hmm. uh, excuse me. I, Go ahead. I like the notion of allusion to to allude to something.
1: Right. So it takes those forms, and it's only, and and then um, you have to actually um, that experience has to be embodied in some way um for ibn arabi it was a literal explicit vision um but in in more ordinary first sight i guess it would be um or it could be anything like you mentioned from the from the um physiological changes that that you have to the the images in significant dreams to what might come up in daydreaming like like um Right. the example that you had of the the patient of yours who was um, suicidal i think you were awake at the time right and it just came to mind right it was something that just came to mind right. for you so these things these meanings will take these will influence us on an unconscious level and then take form in us often in an imaginal way i.e in that is in um, a symbolic or 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 the form of an image and it could be a an image in any of our senses. It could be, um, like, a the, a physical sensory image of, um, pain or an emotion or, uh, or a smell or, uh, or, uh, or something that yeah. we see in our mind's eye, right? It's, yeah. Do you have any, any comment on that for, I'm glad that you read Rumi. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, not, I don't know what I would add, except that when you get comfortable looking at the world, say through the eyes of this theory, or through the lenses of someone who's worked as long as I have with parapsychological research, where we keep we keep getting meaningful findings that are just as good as any other branch of science that I know of, <laughs> and just as reliable, um, is that when you when you start to feel that kind of vague, itchy thing, you might take it more seriously. Mm -hmm. And you might wonder, you'd be a little quicker to wonder, is this leading me somewhere that might matter? Now, it may not. I mean, I I may be getting nervous and this person comes to my mind just because... um, (sighs) you know, I'm in a, I'm in a bad mood or, or or I'm starting to get sick or, um, there's something, you know, it could, it could be a, it could be a false lead. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if you're used to thinking these things do present this way, then you're more likely to take it seriously enough to check it out. Right. To see, and, um, you don't get delusional about it. Don't assume that you've you've gotten a bulletin from um, the gods that that tells you something that you have to call the you know television news about uh, because there's a good chance you're wrong. But it's worth checking out. It's mm-hmm. worth taking seriously because we know in fact that that's how it works. That's what all our research tells us.
1: And maybe even it can be a a motivation to become more, um, sensitive to your own state. Um,
0: yeah, there are implications like that as far as self-development and, um, the development of, a. don't say anything in first sight about a spiritual life.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. Um, but I do read Rumi and Hafez and I do value the development of a spiritual life. And, um, um, The book got too long already, and I I had too many ways already to lose people, so I didn't want to put any more in. But um, uh, to me, that's quite natural. We do live in if we live in a world of extended meaning of this sort, um, then it's not unreasonable to say that we live in a spiritual world,
2: Mm -hmm.
0: and uh, to draw on people like Rumi who have so much to teach us about, I don't know the philosophy you're mentioning that you, that you were referring to. Uh, I don't know much about Sufi philosophy. I really just, I love the poetry, mm-hmm. um, uh, which speaks so eloquently about spiritual experience mm-hmm. and the dance of life and so forth.
3: Well, I, I would just pose Jim that, um, the reason so many scientists don't uh, take to your line of study and work is precisely because it's informed uh, on some level by an appreciation of spiritual growth and, um, and uh, something that's higher than ourselves as we are. Uh, mm-hmm. th- that, that can't be quantified in a rational, uh, so-called rational, uh, scientific, mathematic way so you know this is um this is quite literally uncharted territory for a lot of people that are uncomfortable with the implications of of mm-hmm. the work that you're doing the important work mm-hmm. that you're doing and um and it's it's their loss mm-hmm. even even if they wouldn't see it that way um
1: mm-hmm. yeah. That's... Yeah, no. yeah and uh No, I forgot what I was going to say about that. Um, well, um, I think I think that's about it, Jim. Um, I think I got through... <laughs> I think I got through... Well, no, I just wanted to make a comment. Um, We've covered a lot of territory. Yeah, we, we did all of it. Um, I just wanted to make one comment that... Um, one other important thing um, that I think your book does... Um, because you you mentioned that you didn't include the the spiritual stuff in it no, no room and no reason to add one more thing to get people angry at you but I think what your book does is um, it provides a bridge between the scientific world and the spiritual world um, because you don't I don't think people need to be one or the other you don't if you're like religious or spiritual you don't need to be um, cut off from scientific knowledge and the and the, the the benefits from a scientific outlook and same thing from the other direction if you have a scientific outlook you can have a scientific outlook to things that are spiritual and there is a there is a um, all, all you have to do is expand your your worldview a little bit and you can do that with Whitehead um, or um, David David Ray Griffin to have a worldview that encompasses all of science, you know, all of the possibilities and, and results of science in a, a wider framework that takes into account meaning as well. Um, mm-hmm. And so that that's one of the reasons that I that I appreciated your book so much is that it is rigorous and scientific, and but placed within a larger worldview than we ordinarily see from um, What I'd call like just the mainstream um, there mm-hmm. that there is it's it's in a wider universe than Than most people think exists um, or that most people accept exists. Um, yeah, but, yeah, yeah,
0: I, yeah, I think so and uh, I, I I mentioned in the book I was introduced to these things as a kid by mm-hmm. Experiences my mother had that seemed to be psychic and and so I, I was about equal measures skeptical and intrigued with these things um and that's why i liked ryan's work so much when i was in high school and started to read his books because he he was asking these questions in a scientific way that that if they were if he was onto something opened up a whole lot of the world in a new way um now just to just to end this on a on a um on a real down note um <laughs> let me um let me t- let me let me tell you what i'm working on these days um and show you how boring and technical i can be um
1: well, i'm looking forward to it <laughs>
0: um I, i'm i'm working up some studies i did um in which uh, a basic idea about first sight is that uh, psychic information is going on and registering and participating in some way in our experience all the time. <clears throat> and so, he, if you were if you were a participant in this experiment, you come into a little room and you look at a monitor, and you're told that you're going to be exposed to some subliminal information and some extra sensory information and you're not told any more than that but what you need to do for a while is just look at this screen fixate on a little x in the middle of the screen and once in a while there will be a flicker of light that will immediately be followed by a big geometric pattern and then there'll be another one and another one then you'll be a bunch of these and then we'll ask you to make some decisions about how much you like different pictures and So we threw up on the screen subliminal presentations of certain pictures, extrasensory presentations of certain pictures, and these extrasensory presentations were um, the picture is there in a a rectangle on the screen, but over that is a bigger rectangle that's black and opaque, Mm -hmm. which is like putting an ESP target into a safe and locking the door and the person never gets to look inside the safe to see what it is. So it's like it's in some sense, those pixels are coming up on the screen, but they're covered with these black pixels that even if you stared at it for a month, you couldn't see a picture underneath.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. So a bunch of these things are flashing at you. They're all presented randomly. And then you're shown a series of pictures of photographs in pairs, and so you're shown two kind of cute pictures of puppy dogs. And you're asked, which of those, please decide which one you like a little better than the other. And it may be really close, but pick one. And I picked these pairs because we know from norms that these. So many hundred University of Florida students said they were equally likable. And so these are equally likable, so any difference uh, might have to do with what they've just been exposed to. Now, there's something called the mere exposure effect, which is that if you flash something subliminally, very often the person will be more likely to like that thing when they see it again later, full force. Except we're doing this both with subliminal information and with ESP information. And I'm predicting that it's going to work the same with both. And I'm predicting them using some variables drawn from first sight theory. So for example, certain kinds of openness I expect to be important. Whether or not someone is a creative artist I expect to be important. Whether or not they think that ESP is a sensible idea is, should be important. And there are theoretical reasons for thinking all of these things. Mm-hmm. Um, whether or not you're able to tolerate uh, close interpersonal relationships is one thing I measure. <clears throat> if, you're, if you're not too comfortable with that, then ESP probably gets to be a more uncomfortable idea. Uh, how anxious you are is another thing. Okay, so I take these predictors and I carried out one study in which I found that my predictors of ESP. So I've got these preference judgments. All people know is they're looking at pairs of pictures and they're picking one. They don't. They know in some vague way this is must be sort of an ESP experiment, but they don't have any idea in what way this might be an ESP experiment. It's explained to them at the end. Now, what I'm trying to predict is when that ESP flash, covered, will enter into their preference, and how it will enter in. And so, for example, if they're more open, more creative, less anxious, more likely to believe that ESP is true, things like this, then they're going to tend to like the puppy dog that was put up on the screen covered with black. Then they're going to like the puppy dog that wasn't put up on the screen covered with black. Yeah, And it worked beautifully. It, um, all these predictors nicely told us when people were going to express in this inadvertent way when they were going to express that they'd been exposed to something. Now it was never conscious. They never thought of this as an ESP experiment. It's kind of like surfing the web and you kind of see a pretty picture you sort of like, you know. It's, it's, it's no more psychic than that. They're just saying, hmm, I kind of like that. Hmm, I don't like that one so much. <clears throat> so I took those findings carried out another study, basically the same, used the same predictors, same setup, and found the same results.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So I found what I predicted the first time, I confirmed the first findings in the second study, and this is the kind of research that this theory can lead you to. Mm-hmm. It, it's a way of getting a picture at how of how ESP enters our everyday experience in a way we never notice. So no one ever had an ESP experiment experience in the context of this. Nobody said, Oh my God, my, my brother's in trouble across town. You know, nobody had anything like that. They just liked one puppy dog a little better than the other Mm -hmm. and had no reason to think there was anything except the picture that was involved in that judgment but actually our manipulation entered into that judgment in a way they never knew. So that's, that's the kind of, that's one kind of study that uh, you can use with this theory.
1: Great. After reading your book, I was hoping there would be more studies, you know, designed, designed in this kind of way. So I'm glad that you're doing some.
0: I'm doing some of my own of my own, myself. Nobody else seems to be particularly inspired to uh, complain. Complain.
1: Well, but, uh, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to run our own experiment, like we talked about earlier, with uh, with some uh,
0: <laughs> some it, massive shocks and to
1: I, shocks I, I to the system.
0: You know. Yeah, I love all you know about Whitehead that's, that's really
1: cool. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, I think we're gonna end it there, Jim. Um, Okay. Thanks. Thanks again for for joining us. It was great talking to you. It was a pleasure. Yes. And, uh, yeah. We wish you wish you all the best in uh, in your practice and in your work and in um, you know just uh, living through these strange times that we seem to be living through.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, they hopefully we're all getting in different ways and more understanding of how connected we are and how much we need each other. Mm-hmm. Um. I hope you guys stay safe and um, and you're doing a good job with this. I'm proud to be part of it.
1: Great. Thank you. I'm proud to have you on. Okay. Yeah. Take, take care. We appreciate right. you. Bye. Take care.
0: Nice to meet you both. You. All three of you. Bye. Bye-bye.